This is the Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Harvey. In this episode, a handful of stock tips from the best value investors in the business. At a price of £958 a pop, seats in the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre for the annual London Value Investors Conference aren't cheap. But after a day full of insights and specific investment ideas from the best in the value investing business, I didn't hear any complaints. Superbly facilitated, the full-day conference is built around keynote addresses from leading proponents of the value investment craft who get up on stage and share their best ideas with their peers. In the seven years since the conference started, around 100 stocks have been picked by these presenters. Although there were some dogs amongst them, most of the recommendations have worked out pretty well, some of them spectacularly so. Two earlier episodes of the Rational Perspective podcast were devoted to interviews that I had with two of the presenters, David Kricher and Ben Preston. And thanks to my trusty Zoom HN4 Pro recorder and a front row seat, I did arrive early, I've sifted through the other speakers and honed down three more stocks from those keynotes. This episode kicks off, as did the conference, with Rockstar Fund Manager Nick Kerridge of Schroeder's, who showed us how value investing had underperformed other styles like growth and momentum for the past decade. And as a result, 90% of equity investments has now switched into growth stocks, introducing what he explains is enormous risk that you get from not diversifying. I find this chart to be absolutely extraordinary for a, a, a couple of reasons. The first is that every client I know ever diversifies. They diversify by region by asset class, by size of company, by manager, by fund house. They diversify everywhere. Why? Because they don't know the future. They never put all their eggs in one basket. Except here. Here, everyone is happy to put all their eggs in one basket, and that basket's labelled growth. Now, it might also be labelled franchise investing, or quality investing, or momentum, but it's all growth by another name. And it's incredibly, incredibly popular. Now, maybe that's absolutely fine, but there have been some warning signs. So in the second half of 2016, value rallied for, as I recall, about four and a half minutes. (laughs) They were great minutes. (laughs) But as a result of that, for the calendar year 2016, value had one of its few good years as a scholar in the last seven or eight. In that one year, 84% of all global equity fund managers underperformed at the same time. We are talking about hundreds of fund managers at hundreds of different fund houses buying thousands of different stocks. It should statistically be impossible for so many of them to buy the wrong stocks at the same time. How have they managed it? This. <coughs> They're all buying exactly the same type of stock. But there's a second question that's popping into my head when I see this, and I wonder if it's popping in to yours. So we all know in investing, the theory is you buy low and you sell high. And we all know 
that mean reversion or cyclicality in one form or another is absolutely everywhere in finance, whether it's GDP mean reversing or interest rates or you know, profit margin cycles or inflation or whatever it is. Okay. So I guess my question is, with value having had 10 of the worst years in its entire history, and with 90% of all clients already invested in growth funds, if you're not thinking about buying value now, when are you going to do it? After underperformance of over a decade, times are clearly tough in the value camp. Worse even than during the dot-com boom. And back then, criticism of the value approach of buying stocks when they were cheapest resulted in even the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, being publicly labeled as a has-been. Of course, those opinions swiftly reversed after the Nasdaq bubble burst in January 2000, taking shares like Amazon uh, to one-tenth of the value that they traded at before the the bubble burst. But there's no guarantee of a repeat anytime soon because, as the great economist John Maynard Keynes once quipped, markets can remain irrational a lot longer than you and I can remain solvent. So what to do until the tide turns, as it inevitably shall? Courage of Schroders, Europe's largest asset manager, is pragmatic. What do we do? We've got given a set of stocks to pick from and we have to try and pick the winners. In the cheapest 20% globally, there are 2,500 companies. You've only got to pick 40. In the UK, ditto, a much bigger number than the number you've got to pick. And it is possible to do it. It's very hard work. We've had to grind out returns. It has been very, very hard work to swim against this tide. But it has been possible. There have been winners. Failures too. It's not impossible, though. How do you do this? It's all process. So let's get into the specifics now. As the London Value Investor Conference featured the best ideas from the best value managers, we can assume that there will be gems amongst their picks. I found three. First of them comes from Kerridge, who's a regular at the event, who stuck with Standard Chartered Bank, which he also picked last year. But first, his health warning. The conclusion for me is, don't ever buy our stock recommendations. (laughs) (laughs) Buy our funds. (laughs) And with that conclusion, which turkey should you almost certainly avoid for the next 12 months? Standard charts. I'm going to go again. On the basis that even a broken clock is right twice a day, I'm going to go for last year's pick again. The shares are down about 11% since then, so Kevin put together 15 pages last year, and all of that is, is true. Anyone who knows us will know that we've been pushing banking as an idea for about five years, which is a little bit early, hasn't held us back too much, but we've been adding to our positions. We are convinced. Um, Standard Chartered is amongst the most attractive of the banks. The valuation reflects huge fear about emerging markets. The risks are probably marginally higher than UK banks say, or certainly higher than US banks, but the returns are commensurately higher. This is an almost unique franchise out in emerging markets, we think it's particularly attractive. This is one of the biggest stocks uh, in, in all our funds. The Amazon effect has turned many industries upside down with a mere threat of Jeff Bezos's bulldozer entering a sector, sending stocks of entire industries tumbling. But in adversity lies opportunity. Often these sell-offs are overdone. Here's Stephen Mitchell who handles global equities at FGP, 
and he introduced the delegates to his best idea, one that's been impacted by the Amazon effect, U.S. pharmacy retailer Walgreens. So what is the Amazon threat? Amazon is expected to enter the market as an online pharmacy, as an enhanced offering to the current available mail order uh, offering. 70% of prescriptions are recurring, so that is the optimum uh, market that they will go after. Uh, it's expected that a high percentage of them uh, will go uh, to the online channel. Even though uh, Amazon doesn't have any buying power uh, in, the, in the market currently, they are not legally allowed to, to buy uh, prescriptions um, at the point at which they can because 85% of the market is generic, being so fragmented uh, supplier base, they should be able to grow buying power over time which means that people with recurring prescriptions will choose Amazon for their home delivery option over time. The impact on this is, as it is with traditional uh, brick-and-mortar retail, is that pharmacies will lose foot, foot traffic, which will destroy the brick-and-mortar economic. So I want to address the uh, bear case uh, relative to the three issues that Amazon usually uses to destroy capacity. Uh, convenience and price value. And I think there are two compelling reasons why the pharmacy model is a much more resilient model than uh, traditional retail. Um, and that really relies on the role of the pharmacist as well as who the buyer is in this case. So in America, when they become a, a senior, they have a choice. They, they're given a choice that where do they want to take their where do they want to take their prescriptions? Do they want to take it in the in the pharmacy or do they want to take it at home? And at the point at which they are able to choose, 75% of seniors choose the pharmacy over, over mail order uh, because of the role of the pharmacist as the trusted advisor. That is the key. Second, when we think about uh, price value in this equation, I uh, have compliance uh, up here because the question is who the buyer is. And in the United States, in the vast majority of cases, uh, the buyer of the drugs, the payer for the drugs, is the managed care company. It's not the in-store customer. And so price value for the managed care company is defined by how do I lower my cost. For managed care company, by far the highest cost they have are hospital visits and hospital costs, which are multiple of pharmacy costs. So if I have the client or my my patient go through the pharmacy and I get better drug adherence uh, to their plan, um, I lower my hospital visits, which lowers my hospital costs. And that is the key for the managed care companies. And it is this frequency of interaction between the pharmacist and the patient that is the key uh, indicator for managed care companies, which gives them a multiple of visits at a much lower cost than they would going to the doctor. Mitchell went into a lot more detail, but hopefully you've heard enough to whet your appetite, especially as Walgreens shares have fallen 21% from $80 to $63 since Amazon made its intentions known. The last in our trifecta is UK-listed education business Pearson's, whose price has also fallen sharply, this time from 14.50 to £9 since 2015. It was highlighted by contrarian investor Alex Wright, who's been managing Fidelity International's Special Situation Fund since 2014. But let him explain why he loves what he also described as a very hated stock. 
So if you look back to its highs in sort of 2015, um, from there to the trough in 2017, stock lost sort of about 60% of its value, and that's in a, a largely rising market. Additionally, you can see <coughs> normally you would have positive ratings from the sell side. Analysts and investment banks then generally have a positive disposition to companies. And that very much was the case through sort of 2013 to 2015, with, with most of analysts thinking that, that Pearson was a buy. As the stock underperformed, though, over the, the next two years, that sentiment changed very dramatically. So you can see, even though the stock got demonstrably cheaper, so it fell by, by 60%, the, the number of buys fell dramatically until you got to the point we see today, where actually the, the company has um, nine sales and only three buys. So actually looking across the whole of the FTSE, so every stock quoted in the UK, this is actually the largest absolute number of sell ratings. So no company in the UK has more analysts covering it with a sell. Uh, it's actually joint um, in that rating in terms of M&S also has the same number of sales, but no other company has more. So a very hated stock. And I think the perceptions of what this company is compared to actually what I think the company is, they're very different, which is why I'm so excited. So today, how are people on the sell side describing this? Why are, why are they saying this is negative? So they're saying, right, this is a company that's had several profit warnings in the last couple of years. That is very much correct. Um, and this is a business which is being structurally um, disadvantaged because it's primarily a textbooks in education. The education market is changing and the Pearson is going to lose out through this transition um, and that's why the, the business has been doing so badly. Now I think this is a, a widely held perception given all those ratings and also a short interest of about 13%. So this is a, a stock which hedge funds love to, love to short. Uh, that's been a very bad decision over the last 12 months. Um, but previously a, a good one up over the previous two years. I think going forward, how the narrative around this story looks could be really different. So in my eyes, this is a, a business which is a global leader in education. Education is a structurally growing market. The value of education has never been higher and continues to, to go up. And Pearson has a 40% market share in their, their core market, which is incredibly high. So it has really the attributes of a structurally growing market and a very high market share. Additionally, the way education is being delivered from a, a materials point of view is dramatically changing. So there's a big change from a physical distribution, a textbook, analog uh, business, into an increasingly online business. And actually, I think this is very much cementing Pearson's competitive advantage. Because while there clearly were barriers for entry in content, distribution, sales force, etc. on the textbook side, the cost of delivering a digital platform is spread at Pearson over a much larger user base than any of their competitors. So they're about twice the size of their nearest competitor, um, and which is also a similar size to the number three, then number four and five are very distant. So actually, Pearson's product very much has the capability of being a much better product than peers, and indeed, some of the due diligence we've done really uh, suggests that that will be the case. So there you have it. Standard Chartered, Walgreens, and Pearson's Plus. 
the previously featured David Kricher's Chinese duo of Mo Chai and Dong E Chao, and Ben Preston's Peabody Energy, and you've got six of the best deep value stocks with strong recommendations from well, some of the smartest value investors in the business. Trust that all of this will spur you into doing your own homework. This has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.